seated. In her best-selling book, The Awakened Brain, author and professor of clinical psychology, Dr. Lisa Miller, details the science of spirituality. Dr. Miller, along with a team of collaborators and researchers, spent years employing genetic research, epidemiology, and functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain in an effort to better understand our human spiritual capacity. In one study, Dr. Miller and her team used functional MRI scans to map the brain of people telling stories of three separate experiences, a stressful experience, a relaxing experience, and a spiritual experience. In recounting each story, participants were asked to provide as much detail as possible to explain where they were, who was there, what they were doing, how things looked, and what sensations they experienced. Once the stories had been recorded and the data compiled, Dr. Miller and her team were shocked at the amount of overlap. The spiritual experiences in particular were strikingly similar, sharing numerous details. As Dr. Miller writes, these stories often included references to light and sky, a sense of unity between self and environment, and an emphasis on the sensation of being absorbed into something larger. About half of the, pers- of the personal spiritual narratives shared the detail of being in nature, on a beach or on a mountaintop. All of the spiritual narratives shared important themes and physical sensations. Partis- participants detailed feeling warm, energized, more alive. Emotionally, they experienced awe openness and unity and described a feeling of oneness with the environment or the divine, a sense of dissolving into something larger around or beyond them. Perhaps these are sensations and experiences with which we can all identify. Light and sky, boundaries dissolving, being absorbed into something greater, oneness, openness, mountaintops, and awe. While we consider that possibility, let us listen together to a portion of the story of God as it is written in the library we love from the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel. About eight days later, Jesus climbed the mountain to pray, taking Peter, John, and James along. While he was in prayer, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. They appeared in glory and were speaking of departure, the one Jesus was about to complete in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Peter and those with him were slumped over in sleep. When they came to, rubbing their eyes, they saw Jesus in his glory and the two men standing with him. Just as Moses and Elijah were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, this is a great moment. Let's build three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter blurted this out without thinking. While he was speaking, a cloud came and enveloped them, and they became deeply aware of God. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, the chosen. Listen to him. When the sound of the voice died away, they saw Jesus there alone. They were speechless, and during those days, they told no one of what they had seen. 
The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's begin with the obvious. On one level, this story in the Gospel of Luke is undeniably making a statement about Jesus. Known as the Transfiguration, this story appears in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each instance, there's an obvious statement about the divine identity of Jesus. He's transfigured, after all, literally transformed into something more beautiful and elevated. His clothes glow. His face changes. Two long-dead members of the biblical Hall of Fame appear out of thin air. And if that's not enough to drive the point home, a speaking cloud envelops everyone and declares, this is my son, the chosen. Listen to him. Friends, these details are not subtle. The writers of these transfiguration accounts want people to know about the divinity of Jesus. That much is obvious. And yet, that doesn't seem to be the only thing going on in this story. If the only goal was to declare the divinity of Jesus, then this story contains way too many details. One could even say there's a thick cloud of strange and specific details hovering over this story. Specific details like who goes up on the mountain with Jesus. Strange details like what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talk about. Or Peter's response to seeing those three in conversation. Details like the disciples deciding to keep this story to themselves for a while. If the only reason to tell this story of transfiguration is to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, then these details don't seem necessary. Why not just tell a story about Jesus glowing while receiving a holy endorsement from the voice of God? Why is this story absorbed with details? In recording the spiritual experiences submitted in her study, Dr. Lisa Miller and her team asked participants to provide as many specific details as possible. According to Dr. Miller, those strange details like being on a mountaintop or experiencing a great light or being absorbed into something larger were important because they pointed toward our shared spiritual capacity. If she's correct, then perhaps the specific and strange details of this story exist not only to provide a witness to the divinity of Jesus, but also to awaken us to our shared spiritual capacity. Maybe the details are here to help us not just observe or read about the transfiguration, but relate to it, to see our story in this story. When Matthew and Mark tell the story of the transfiguration in their Gospels, they both use the Greek word metamorpho to describe what happened to Jesus. Metamorpho is where we get our English word metamorphosis. The transfiguration is a metamorphosis. It's a change in form or nature resulting in something completely different. But Jesus is not alone in this metamorphosis. Five other characters are specifically named as experiencing the transfiguration. Three disciples, Peter, John, and James. And then strangely, Moses and Elijah. What a seemingly odd spectrum of witnesses. From present-day disciples to heroes of the faith. 
a quirky combination of questioning teenagers and long-dead eternity-accessing prophets. Those long-dead prophets, Moses and Elijah, they've climbed mountains before. They know transfiguration firsthand. In fact, hundreds of years after the time when Moses would have descended glowing from his own mountaintop metamorphosis with the Ten Commandments, Elijah is said to have climbed the same mountain for a transformational meeting with God. Something seems to happen to people on top of the mountain with God. All the characters named in Luke's transfiguration account bear witness to this reality. They're common fishermen, abandoned children, outcasts, and enemies of the state who become priests, prophets, emancipators, and martyrs. This transfiguration doesn't seem to just be about Jesus. And perhaps that's the first statement revealed by the details of this story. Anyone can be transformed. At one point in their respective journeys, every character in this story winds up transformed on top of a mountain. In ancient wisdom writings, the mountain itself was a symbol of transformation. Mountains represent a change in elevation, seeing things differently, a transformation of our viewpoint. No one ascends and descends the mountain unchanged. Every step of our journey, our hiking, climbing, resting, even our falling can result in transformation, a change in the way we see God or others or ourselves. Once more in a relationship with God, we should trust that we will inevitably and repeatedly encounter mountains of metamorphosis. Such opportunities for change may not be wanted or invited. They might not even be initially accepted, but in the words of the great theologian Sam Cooke, a change is going to come. It's not hard to imagine that James, John, Peter, Elijah, and Moses, our strange and specific multitude of mountaineers, would agree. In fact, we don't even have to imagine because their stories and testimonies of transformation fill the pages of the Bible. In addition to testifying to the truth that anyone can be transformed, their stories also remind us that transformation is not a passive experience. There is work to be done. On one level, the roles Moses and Elijah play in the transfiguration of Jesus declares that our metamorphosis will, at the very least, require us to transcend our past. And friends, that's not easy. When the transfiguration begins, Moses and Elijah, pillars of the past, voices of fidelity and prophecy are there literally talking with Jesus. And then they're gone. The disciples emerge from the cloud, and only Jesus remains. The conversational presence of Moses and Elijah is the very picture of honoring our past, listening to it, but not remaining stuck in it. Our past informs us, to be sure. It is included. Our past is part of the conversation, but we transcend it. 
we grow beyond. Our earlier boundaries dissolve into something larger. And yet another nod to details, Luke's gospel is the only gospel that tells us what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about. Verse 31 says they were speaking of Jesus' coming departure. The Greek word translated as departure there is the word exodus, which is a fascinating detail. Moses and Elijah are not tourists. They know what they're talking about. They've lived exodus. They've experienced departure. Just like Jesus, both Moses and Elijah have literally carried a divine message for which the religious establishment wanted to kill them. And just like Jesus, both Moses and Elijah carried that message anyway. Can you imagine two better people to be in the cloud of witnesses on top of this mountain? Moses and Elijah have been there. They know something of what Jesus is facing. They can provide counsel. Yet, they can't walk the path that Jesus will walk. Our past informs us, but it can neither contain us nor carry us. During times of stress and trauma, we will be tempted to regress, to retreat into the nostalgia of what we tragically remember as better times. We may even worship and pray to a smaller God, the one we knew before our transformation, but the eternal never fits in the boxes we create. Just like radiant light or an enveloping cloud, God spills out. The divine gets loose in our lives, absorbing and exceeding our carefully curated and preserved past. We include our past, but our transformation requires that we transcend it. The light and cloud of Jesus' transfiguration absorbs Moses and Elijah and all they represent. There is continuity, but there's no going back. The transfigured Christ transcends the past and moves forward, turning toward Jerusalem and the suffering that awaits him there. Herein lies another reality of our shared spiritual capacity to be transformed. Pain is a part of it. As we move into transformation, as we transcend our past, suffering will transpire. Franciscan priest Father Richard Rohr asserts that there are only two paths by which we are transformed, great love and great suffering. Rohr says both finally come down to great suffering because if we love anything greatly, we will eventually suffer for it. According to Father Rohr, Jesus is leading the disciples toward the transfiguration experience. He's preparing them for the cross and saying, it's going to come. Be ready. It's probably the only thing that will transfigure you. Suffering transpires, and Jesus will not be the only one transformed. I would submit to you the possibility that one reason we're provided the strange and specific details of Peter, John, and James sleeping on the mountain of transfiguration is because we will soon see the same disciples 
sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, moments before he will be betrayed, Jesus is so burdened by the suffering he carries that Luke writes, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground as he prayed for relief. Peter, John, and James, the same three awakened and confused by the transfiguration on the mountain, are now awakened and confused by the suffering in the garden. Pain is a part of it. Metamorphosis is messy. Transformation is traumatic. Yet Jesus doesn't try to evade the Garden of Gethsemane or escape the suffering he knows will transpire in Jerusalem. When the light of the transfiguration fades and the cloud lifts, Jesus doesn't point fingers or assign blame. He sets his eyes on the suffering and he walks toward it. We can't stay on the mountaintop forever. Suffering will transpire. It's not to be avoided. It's to be faced, embraced, and absorbed. We all have the capacity to be transformed. Our transformation will require us to transcend our past, and suffering will transpire. These are not easy ideas. These are not warm, fuzzies, warm, fuzzy realities we tend to run toward. This kind of understanding is hard-earned. It's experiential. It takes time. Interpreting our experiences, assigning meaning to them, wrapping our hearts and minds around all that has happened is not something we can do quickly. Translation takes time. This story ends with the specific detail that Peter, John, and James decide not to immediately share everything they experienced on the mountain. According to this detail, they don't even tell the rest of the disciples. They had just seen Jesus transfigured, glowing and radiant. They had just hung out with Moses and Elijah. They had been enveloped by a cloud and heard a divine voice. They were literally experiencing metamorphosis and yet nothing. They hold it. They keep it to themselves. Friends, there is no way I could have done that. I would have told everyone I could find. I would have written a book, done a podcast, posted it on social media, and printed T-shirts. I wouldn't have thought twice before blurting out my experience to anyone who would listen. Enter my boy Peter. He gets me. And yet another odd detail, Luke's story of the transfiguration tells us that upon seeing Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus, Peter blurts out without thinking. Master, this is a great moment. Let's build three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Friends, I agree with Peter. I understand being so excited by what I'm experiencing that I must take action. I get being so motivated, but what I think I understand that I have to do something. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Peter as taking action by wanting to build three dwellings. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. This is not story filler. This is a clue. 
another strange but important detail. The Greek word translated as dwelling in all three Gospels is the Greek word skein, which is a tent, tabernacle, or temporary dwelling. Peter wants to build three tents or three tabernacles. The festival of tabernacles was the central feast of the ancient Israelite faith. It was and is a celebration to commemorate the 40 years when Moses and the Israelites wandered and waited in the wilderness, living in tents, depending on the provision of God, translating what it meant to be liberated people. Peter would have celebrated this eight-day festival every year of his life. The prophet Zechariah declared the festival of tabernacles to be the festival that all the nations would celebrate forever, a time when Zechariah 14 states, God will come and all the holy ones with him. So, Peter sees a transfigured Christ flanked by Moses and Elijah and assumes he's got it figured out. God has come and the holy ones are with him. It must be time to celebrate the festival. It must be time to build some tents. It's like Peter and I were separated at birth. I get him. I do the same stuff. Even before the transfiguration of Jesus is over, Peter assumes he's got it all figured out. He knows exactly what it means, and he knows exactly what to do. But Luke makes sure we know that Peter did not have it all figured out. Luke tells us that Peter blurts his tent-building suggestion out without thinking because translation takes time. Grasping the meaning of our transformational experiences doesn't happen instantly. It takes space, room to breathe. As my teacher used to tell me, clarity comes in the living. We wrestle with meaning over time by walking things out, by falling down and rising again, just like Peter. Truth is, even when I do blurt out my mountaintop revelations, no one else really understands them because metamorphosis has to be experienced directly. It can't be shared on social media. Transformation is non-transferable. As Father Rohr says, we can't believe it because someone else talked about it. Sooner or later, we have to go to our own mountaintop. We have to have our own transfiguration and walk down the mountain toward the path of suffering. And that takes time. Peter's tent-building outburst and the disciples' resulting decision to keep their transfiguration experience to themselves for the time being reminds us that clarity comes in the living, not in the moment. We can't expect to fully understand metamorphosis as it is happening to us. Translation takes time. There is at least one more detail in this story that deserves our attention. It's the specific detail that begins the story, the number eight. The story opens with the words, about eight days later, Jesus climbed the mountain to pray. Eight days later is strangely specific. 
To the ancient Israelites, however, numbers were never just numbers. Numbers carried symbolic meaning. Our forebears who told and preserved these stories recognized the number eight as a symbol of new creation. The poem that begins the book of Genesis details that the creation of the universe took place in seven days. Six days of divine labor and a seventh day of rest. Accordingly, the number seven carried with it the symbolism of creation. And eight being creation plus one carried with it the symbolism of what happens next. The new thing that God is doing. On the seventh day of creation, God rested, but on the eighth day, the transformation of that creation into something more beautiful began. From the opening sentence, this story declares transfiguration, metamorphosis, new creation. God is doing a new thing. At the end of her study in spiritual experiences, Dr. Lisa Miller concluded We can choose how we approach life, especially during major inflection points. We can ignore the existential questions and the mountains and clouds that ignite our spiritual awareness. We can dismiss the details, resist renewal, and shutter every space in an attempt to sidestep suffering. Or, as Dr. Miller writes, we can open the door to a reshuffling of meaning, to the foundational felt awareness that we are loved and held and part of it all. Anyone can be transformed. We will have to transcend our past. Suffering will transpire and we will need time to translate what has happened to us. But metamorphosis is not just part of our potential. It's hardwired into creation. It is baked right in. We've always had the opportunity to become. To become something more beautiful. To become more light-bearing, more life-giving. We've always had the opportunity to be transfigured. It began after the day God rested, the eighth day. And it hasn't stopped since. That much should be transparent. Thank you, Pastor Darrell, for a transcendent, transformational sermon. And so now... Let us transport ourselves with Charles Wesley and stand as we sing Christ whose glory fills the skies as we are able.
My brothers and sisters, as we leave this sanctuary of time and space, I invite you to receive this benediction. May we remember our shared spiritual capacity for transformation. May we be people who transcend our past, facing and absorbing the suffering that will transpire. May we take time to translate our experiences, and may we come alongside those on the mountain and in the garden that they may know they are not alone. Go in peace. Thank you.